0: Close your eyes. Imagine the sounds of the natural world. You might hear birds singing, insects chirping. There might also be a breeze blowing through the trees. But this is also the sound of nature. This is music composed and played by plants. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on the show, a greenhouse orchestra. My first guest is Sam Nestor. Sam is a musician and artist, and he's the creator of Arcadia, a sound and light installation all by plants at George Mason University's Fairfax campus. Sam, your Arcadia installation is absolutely beautiful. Where did you get the idea to have the plants themselves be the performers?
1: Well, first of all, thank you. Um, uh, I also, I have to say, I'm I'm enjoying it as well. Uh, And and thankfully to the design of it, I get to enjoy it because it's changing all the time. Um, And uh, where it first came from, uh, it was a couple of years ago I visited an educational greenhouse, a beautiful glass room on the top of a school on the upper west side uh, of Manhattan. And uh, you know when i when I walked into this space for the first time, I had, had two thoughts. First was uh, what an incredible endeavor an educational greenhouse for children, teaching them horticulture and sustainability and and building uh, relationships to the natural world in an otherwise very urbanized environment here in New York City. And uh, I thought, you know, if every school had one of these, I wonder what the future of the planet would look like in a few generations. And then my second thought uh, was that I wanted to make something for this greenhouse. And uh, I wanted it to enact the same kind of wonder or inspire the same kind of awe that I had by seeing uh, the immense educational value in this space. How are
0: you eliciting these musical notes from plants?
1: Great question. Uh, There are devices that are connected to each plant within this installation and those devices are reading essentially electrical conductance, galvanic skin response and the glutamate receptors of plants. And what that means is that there are two points on each one of these plants that's registering data, whether through the leaves or or connected to various parts of the plant or even in the potted soil and the roots of the plant. And this data that uh, these devices are reading is mostly related to the amount of water between these two points in a plant. And this fluctuates as part of the natural biorhythms of the plant and it, it changes throughout the day and over longer periods of time, weeks and, and years, et cetera. And those, uh, that electrical conductance uh, that it's reading um, is sending out pitch material. So it's, it's, it's those notes that you're hearing. Um, so when that changes, uh, the, the, the note will change. And then with the velocity of those changes... Uh, there are other signals that are coming in and uh, I've been able to program in ways in which those notes then interact. So, for example, if we had the note C4 and uh, that note had come in, depending on the velocity of that change within the plant, um, that C4 could come out in many different ways.
0: Can we listen to the plants right now? Tell me what I'm hearing and which plants are making these sounds.
1: So we're hearing uh, MIDI instruments, uh, that's digital instruments, that have been specifically designed for this installation that the plants are essentially playing. And the way those plants are playing these instruments is uh, by the changes that are happening inside them.
0: Are you finding that the music reflects the mood, or feeling, or prosperity of the plant at any given moment?
1: I think one of the things that uh, that we do here is 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 what's essentially we could call it the health of a plant, or um, what's happening in terms of the time of the day and and how much uh, it's acting and and um, and reacting to its environment. Uh, I think. Assigning the the you know emotional part or, or the feeling part is while it's one of the the parts that I love the most and and people seem rather excited about it I'm a little cautious to say that uh, that one particular plant is happier or sadder than the other
0: right but you get that question a lot right
1: you know I do get that question a lot and it's one that I really <laughs> love
0: <laughs> um it's so interesting that you've conceived of this installation called Arcadia as a kind of return to nature. And yet the installation itself is really technologically advanced, and we often think of that kind of technology as counter to nature, but they work beautifully together in Arcadia. Do you ever think about that tension between the nature and the technology?
1: Definitely, I, th- I I I do. I think I think in this way we're utilizing technology to enact a very special uh, um, relationship, and I, I think in this way I think they really work hand in hand. Without the technology that's that's in this installation, it's kind of amplifying again the idea of the life um, of these individual plants and just, you know, how much is happening and changing within them all the time. And so I do see that, you know, we you when know, we talk about environmental art or we talk about the environment and we talk about technology, that these things can somehow seem dichotomous but I really, I really think uh, in this instance that it is the technology that is is giving us all this 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 wonderful feeling. Let's say of of experiencing what's happening there, and hopefully, you know, inspiring that same kind of awe and wonder uh, that I had initially felt in that first educational greenhouse I visited.
0: I want to bring Don Russell and Yes Means Salem into the conversation. Don is a university curator at George Mason University. And Yasmin is part of the student group who brought the installation to campus. Let me start with Don. Don, can you describe what it's like to walk through this installation, which we haven't said also has a light component,
2: right? Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, The same signals that come from the plants can be Uh, translated into light signals. And uh, we have an array of LED lights and a screen that they kind of project onto behind the plants. What's interesting about that is that, you know, this was supposed to be part of a mural program. So this is a, I always like to push the boundaries of, you know, what people call art. (laughs) And so this is really um, a mural. It's definitely a mural in in some profound way, but you might not think of it as such.
0: Yasmin, what drew you and your student group to the project? What does it suggest to you about plants?
3: Um, it really suggests to me that there's a lot more going on um, with with plants and nature than most people. Um, assume and expect. Uh, I think it's very easy for people nowadays to go about their daily lives, especially in a more urban area, um, and kind of forget how much life and um, and interesting, wonderful things are happening um, within nature and animals. So I think, um, as you said earlier, this is a return to nature, and it's a much needed return to nature, especially under the pandemic circumstances, but also. Um, in an increasingly technological society.
0: Don, tell me a little bit more about the plants in the greenhouse and the kind of research they're part of.
2: Sure. Um, Various people will be doing research using different plants. The the most specific research project is going to relate to American ginseng, which is a uh, wild um, ginseng plant, very medicinal. And uh, it is over-harvested in the wild, so there, and it's difficult to propagate in a greenhouse. Um, so uh, Donnie Nolan is doing her um, PhD thesis on this topic and is using the installation to um, sort of track, see what kind of data she can she can glean um, in, in her propagation research.
0: Sam, Arcadia has been set up in several different environments. Tell me about where it's been set up elsewhere and do you find that the plants perform differently one to the other does a native virginia plant orchestra sound different than a forest in australia for instance
1: you know it has been set up in a couple of places in manhattan in a greenhouse and yes indeed in a forest a kind of an incredibly beautiful ancient forest off the on an island off the coast of tasmania as well as uh, george mason university and and while you know things will be happening very differently in all of these plants, it is more based on their health rather than, say, you know, an Australian forest plays ACDC and a Virginian, you know, greenhouse plays Beethoven. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. Although I wish it did, and uh, maybe that's the next, maybe that's the next version of it. <laughs> um, but it, it, it definitely, we definitely hear uh, differences. You know, after having the idea, and uh, and you know, it kind of it, it bore a hole in me, and I thought, well, I really have to make this thing work. Um, I started working with uh, um, the technology and, and, and working on a little programming and I was here in my Manhattan apartment and I was working with an orchid in my house and uh, in my apartment and, of course, you know, orchids unfortunately can be quite fickle creatures and so this one wasn't faring so well while I was working with it and, you know, all of a sudden I was getting, I was getting one note one pitch and it was coming very rapidly and um, rapidly but unrhythmic, un- and uh, it was really kind of let's let's say rather unpleasant. And so I was working with it, and I don't know why I stuck <laughs> so long at working with this this one this one orchid, and then after about a day and a half, um, I, I switched the system over to another plant in my apartment that was of course very healthy and all of a sudden that same programming without changing anything without dictating anything it was that same system suddenly you know produced a lot of pitch and a lot of range, and it was really quite beautifully uh, rhythmic. And all of a sudden, you know, I realized, of course, that there was, at that time at least, there was nothing necessarily wrong with what I was designing, but rather wrong with that orchid. But I, I definitely have found that we we notice certain things that are happening within plants just by connecting the system to them.
0: Yes, mean. Has spending time with Arcadia changed the way you interact with the natural world in any way made you flash to thoughts about plants or nature in a way you had not before?
3: Yes. And for me, um, this installation really kind of went hand in hand with a lot of um, ideas that I had already kind of had um, in terms of nature and um, just Consciousness in general. Um, but in terms of listening to the live stream, um, it is a very profound experience to realize that what you're listening to um, is really reflecting um, changes within these plants. If you listen to it on a regular basis um, and it's a cloudy day, one day, the sounds are very different versus um, the next day if it's very sunny or um, if it's watering day and they were just watered. Um, So I think that um, adds particular interest that um, that's not something that you can catch with um, just looking at a plant unless there is uh, the lights and the music that we've uh, been able to bring to Mason through Arcadia. You
0: know, I think this pandemic period has made us more sensitive to life to the fragility of our own and also the natural world around us.
1: Absolutely, I I, I really believe it, and uh, I think as we as we are mostly locked indoors at the moment, uh, I I hear I see more and more uh, a conversation about what is happening and our relationship to to. To the natural environment, not only our longing to be to get back out there, but also our consideration for what we are doing to the environment. Uh, you know, we are we are now um, within the uh, what's being called the Anthropocene extinction, the ongoing extinction of a variety. Of species as a direct result of human activities. And uh, in 2019, the Global Assessment Report on Biodiversity and Eco Services, um, which uh, is published by the United Nations, suggested that uh, around 1 million species of plants and animals face extinction within decades as the result of human actions. Um, which is, of course, deeply upsetting to me to think that my existence, uh, you know, could partially be responsible for this extinction. And I think um, this pandemic has made us think about um, much more uh, our relationship to the natural world. And, I'm, and I hope that, you know, this installation um, helps to, you know, helps to guide us in even more thought, uh, you know, in that in that vein.
0: Yes, mean, How can people tune in to listen to this live music performance by the plants?
3: Uh, we have a web page that's active. It has the live stream as well as um, a description of the project and um, a couple of different events that we've actually hosted, um, particularly a concert uh, where we had a bunch of professional artists. Perform their own responses to Arcadia. So all of that can be found at go.gmu.edu/slash Arcadia.
0: Sam Nestor is a musician and artist and creator of Arcadia. Yasmin Salem is a graduate of George Mason University and program coordinator of murals at Mason. Donald Russell is university curator at George Mason University. Coming up next, the foot-long oysters of the Chesapeake Bay. Fossils give away the secrets of the past, but they can also help predict the future, Rowan Lockwood is a professor of geology at William & Mary. For years, Dr. Lockwood has been studying the fossil record in the Chesapeake Bay, and she says a lot has changed in just a few hundred years. Dr. Lockwood was named a 2019 Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award recipient. This is an encore presentation of a conversation originally aired in 2019. Rowan, you are at the forefront of a field called conservation paleobiology.
4: What is that? Uh, Well, it starts really all with anchovies. So back in the 60s, a scientist out in California noticed that the anchovy and the herring, basically the small fish harvest, was way down. A lot of people blamed pollution. They blamed the beginnings of climate change. And he thought, huh, maybe I could use the fossil record to figure out what's actually driving it. So he punched a bunch of holes all over the seafloor off the coast of California, and what he found, looking at these fossil scales, is that anchovies and herrings just do this. So they have basically a boom and a bust history where they get really common, and then they're really rare, and then they're really common, and then they're really rare, and it's a natural cycle.
0: seems scary, though, because you could look at the fossil record and say, don't worry about die-offs. They've always happened, and yet they could be cataclysmic
4: now. Sure. And so in the case of anchovies, we discovered that they naturally come and go. But in the case of a lot of other species, whether it's caribou or wolves or small mammals or oysters, that's not necessarily the case. Josh Miller, who's at Cincinnati, he has done a phenomenal job looking at where caribou um, used to migrate in the past. And we're talking going all the way back to the last Ice Age where they used to migrate, but then also where they used to calve, where they used to have their babies. And from the record, he can help us see how that's changed over time, and he can help people in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge predict where they should or shouldn't build roads, where they could develop, all that sort of thing.
0: You, in particular, in your research, have been looking at ancient oyster shells. Why?
4: So I'm fascinated in the fossil record of oysters, mainly because I want to see what they looked like before humans came along. If you look at the Chesapeake Bay today, we have information going back about 50 years on what size the oysters were, where they lived, how they grew, but that's not very much time, if you think about oyster history. And in fact, we started dredging and we started fishing those oyster populations down over 100 years ago.
0: How many oysters do we have now compared to, let's just start with, maybe 50 years ago? So in the 50s and 60s, what did the oyster population of the vast Chesapeake Bay look
4: like? Mm, Not great. So by the 1950s and 60s, the oyster population was already Probably at three or four percent of its historic abundance, we had already really decimated those populations. But now uh, now we're down to one or two percent.
0: Is there a way you can help me envision how much of the Chesapeake Bay was once covered by oyster reefs?
4: Sure. It's estimated today. If you think about oysters sitting on the bottom of the bay, they're all filtering water. That's one of the reasons we care about oysters in the bay. They're filtering water, and people estimate it takes them over a year. For the living oysters in the bay today to filter the whole volume, that whole bathtub, that whole bay of water. If you go back to um, the mid-1800s, it probably took about a week for those oysters to filter the entire bay. If you go back to the fossil record, the oysters that I'm studying, they're about 200,000 years old. You go back that long, it took them about a day. So we're talking about massive oyster reefs, some of them um, presumably reaching the surface, some of them with oysters that were almost a foot long. We're talking oysters that you'd have to cut into several pieces before you could eat them.
0: So if you were swimming in the bay back then
4: and you gulped a mouthful of water, it had probably been filtered by an oyster? Yes, and it would be much cleaner as a result. Um, One thing to think about if folks have been swimming in the bay today, it's pretty hard to see anything. Um, If you do open your eyes, the visibility is really low. Back then, it would have been crystal clear because of all the work of those oysters.
0: What do you think decimated the oyster populations? Was it pollution, disease, or over-harvesting?
4: In my personal opinion, and this is based on some work I'm trying to do with ancient DNA, in my personal opinion, it's really over-harvesting. Those oysters would be just fine. They've lived with those diseases for a very long time, and diseases don't tend to kill off shellfish. Unfortunately, humans do.
0: You live near the Chesapeake Bay, and you know how strong the fishing interests are for continuing to dredge what few oysters are left.
4: It's a really difficult balance. I think we have to keep in mind the sociocultural side of, you know, the waterman's culture. At the same time, if there's no bay or the bay is super unhealthy that culture isn't going to be allowed to continue. So I think it's a a difficult balance. But just as we've done with striped bass, with blue crab, we really need to think about the long-term kind of sustainability, the long-term future of the bay and the oysters.
0: What have you learned from journals of the early explorers and settlers as to what they actually wrote about seeing when it came to oysters and how they harvested them themselves.
4: Yeah. So there aren't that many historical records out there, but we know, for example, that Captain John Smith wrote in his journal that the oyster reefs were so large, they were a navigational hazard. They actually had trouble coming up the bay into the James River. They had trouble not hitting or wrecking against those oyster reefs. He tells stories of um, oysters that were, quote unquote, as big as paving stones.
0: Tell me about the fossilized oysters that you found. Where do you find them? How old are they? And what are they revealing to you?
4: Yeah, so I am um, really working with oysters from Delaware all the way down to South Carolina. A lot of the work I do is around the Chesapeake Bay. So anyone who has thinks they have fossil oysters in their backyard, please give me a call. And what I do is I slice them in half with a tile saw. And when you do that and you look at the top of the shell, you can see that the shell has Growth lines in it. So there are these really cool gray and white alternating stripes, and I can count those gray lines, and those gray lines represent winter. They represent when that shell was growing in the winter. So I can measure the size of these oysters, I can count those gray bands, and I can tell you how long they lived, and I can start to get at things like population size. I can start to get at things like growth rates that let me compare oysters today from oysters in the past.
0: So are you finding that oysters from millions of years ago grew larger than they're allowed to grow now?
4: Yeah. So part of what we find is that, you know, the average oyster in an oyster survey today is maybe five inches long. It lives a maximum of five years. When I go in the fossil record, I'm finding oysters as long as 12 inches. I'm finding oysters that lived up to 25 years. This is a much longer-lived animal than what we previously realized. and it changes how we could approach restoration. It changes how we could um, think about bringing them back in the bay. Same species of oyster. Exact same species of oyster. It's called Crassostrea virginica.
0: How long ago did the oysters you're talking about
4: live? So um, I'm working here with oysters that are anywhere from 80,000 to about 500,000 years old. And they're all growing in the same temperature and the same salinity as the oysters today, The big difference is they're not experiencing over-harvesting. So when we harvest oysters today, we preferentially harvest the big ones. It's the big ones that are female, and it's the big ones that have the most babies. So when we harvest oysters, if we're harvesting everything that's, say, you know, maybe over three or four inches long, you are preferentially harvesting those really big females that have lots of babies. The way we harvest most oysters is by dredge, and dredge pulls everything up and so even if you were to dump the oysters back down again, it's unlikely that they would survive. So we need to get creative. We need to think about other ways or, or maybe even go back to um, historical ways of harvesting these oysters to make it more sustainable. So what to do to restore the oyster beds of yore, right? Right now, most of the money that we spend on Chesapeake Bay restoration, most of that money that goes towards oysters really concentrates on baby oysters, either raising them in the lab and releasing them, or maybe laying down dead shell on the bay for oysters to land on, I would argue we need to spend a lot of time and energy. We need to spend much more of our focus on these really big adult oysters. So each adult oyster can produce over a 1,000 offspring in a season. Wouldn't you want to spend more of your money preserving those adult oysters so they can keep producing those babies rather than spending your money on the babies themselves.
0: And how could you preserve adults? How What would that look like to a dredger or an oyster harvester?
4: So right now in the Bay, it depends on whether you're talking about Virginia or Maryland, but we have very few sanctuaries. And the sanctuaries that we have, basically the no-harvest areas that we have, they only last one or two years. Well, that might make sense if an oyster is only supposed to live for five years, But if these oysters are supposed to live for 25 years, it would make sense to have many more sanctuaries that lasted longer over a larger area. So I I think it really comes down to sanctuaries.
0: Could we do that? Could we have a 25-year moratorium on harvesting in certain
4: areas? It's, It's a matter of political will. It's that balance between sort of the sociocultural side of oyster harvesting with the biology. I think from a biological standpoint, Um, It would cost us a lot less money. It would be a lot less time and energy just to do those sanctuaries.
0: Rowan Lockwood is a professor of geology at William & Mary. She was named a 2019 Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award recipient. Our conversation originally aired in 2019. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. This episode originally aired in 2019. Imagine that pristine summer vacation spot, a house on a lake. The cool water is clear and blue. Some of America's most famous lakes, like Lake Tahoe, are known for their sparkling blue water. But America's blue lakes are starting to disappear. Dina Leach is a biology professor at Longwood University working on the Lakes Project. Dina,
5: are we losing our Blue Lakes? We may be, yeah. How many are there? So it's a challenging question. How many lakes are there in the United States? There's not an official list. Um, and so our, our best estimates are around 380-some thousand. And in 2007, of those, maybe about 45% would be characterized as blue lakes. Um, but moving into 2012, uh, it could be as low now as about 25%.
0: So, in only five years, we lost a lot of blue lakes.
5: Yes, yes, that is a very short time period.
0: Why are we even counting how many blue lakes we have?
5: So the color of a lake can tell us a lot about the water quality or the health of that system. Blue lakes, those that are crystal clear that we can see deep down into um, the water column, those are lakes that tend to be have low nutrient pollution, not a lot of organic matter coming in from the surrounding land, and that's what gives them that clear blue color. As we start to increase nutrient pollution into a lake, that stimulates all that algae to grow. And so those lakes shift from being blue to green because of all that algae.
0: Where do you mostly see blue lakes?
5: Blue lakes tend to be in... mountainous areas, uh, so small watersheds, less nutrients and organic matter coming into those systems. We also see them in areas where there's not a lot of soil around the lakes. And so as water runs off, it's not carrying a lot of stuff with it to change its color.
0: When did they create this National Lakes Assessment, which is check the health of all these lakes, or at least a good sampling, every five years?
5: Right. So the National Lakes Assessment, um, the first one was in 2007. So of all those 380-some thousand lakes, the EPA went out and sampled over a 1,000 of them. And they measure all kinds of different parameters on the chemistry of the water, the biology, what kind of organisms are living in them, what sort of activities are going on in the watershed, is there agriculture, industry, recreation. Based on what's happening in these 1,000 lakes that we sampled intensely, we can make projections about what's going on in thousands of more lakes across the country.
0: What are the colors that scientists generally recognize lakes should naturally have?
5: Right. So we as aquatic scientists, we kind of categorize lakes into four different colors. We have blue lakes, which are those crystal clear waters with low nutrient and organic matter levels. We have brown lakes, which are lakes that have a lot of organic matter coming into the system. So you can think of that like a tea bag. Um, the more uh, you leave your tea bag steeping in that hot water, the darker brown it gets. The same thing's going on with the lake and organic matter. That's what's giving it that brown color. We also have green lakes. So green lakes would be lakes with a lot of um, nutrient or fertilizer coming into them, which is stimulating the growth of algae, giving it that green pea soup color. And then finally, we have murky lakes. So murky lakes are lakes that are brownish green in color, and that's because they're receiving both organic matter and uh, fertilizer inputs from the watershed. So you have this brown color from the organic matter, um, but you also have a lot of algal growth in there because of the nutrients.
0: Do we know anything about what lakes looked like in terms of water quality and color and clarity? maybe 100 years ago compared with now?
5: Yeah, so some of the interesting data sets are out there, um, particularly in the the Northeast and the Northwest. um, We've noticed this freshwater browning, that lakes are getting browner in color because the land, for some reason, is becoming more leaky to organic matter. and again, to use that tea bag analogy, you know, for some reason the tea bag is le- staying in there longer. We have this darker brown color. Why is that? We don't know for sure, but it could actually be a good sign. Uh, one of the things that causes lakes to actually get bluer is acid rain. So when acid rain falls on a watershed, it makes the soil more acidic. When soils are more acidic, they hold on to organic matter tighter. And so because of legislation in the 70s, the Clean Air Act, we've cleaned up our air pollutants. And so acid rain has declined, which is a good thing. And, And now soils are starting to become more basic. And as they become more basic, they are not holding on to organic matter as tight as they once did when they were acidic. And so that could be maybe lakes, These some of these blue lakes are actually returning to their natural state of being a brown lake.
0: Isn't that fascinating? It is. <laughs>
5: Well, what you just said
0: about if we're having less acid rain, we could see a decrease in blue lakes that would be a very natural and welcome right. consequence. So how are we to think about the health of our lakes?
5: Yeah, it's it's a complex question, right? Because you have natural processes that are occurring that fe- affect the color of a lake. Um, but there's also a lot of human activity within the land surrounding a lake, which can influence its color. For example, agriculture. So we know that lakes that are near a lot of agricultural activity tend to be either green or murky in color. And that's because that processing of the land and application of fertilizer increases runoff to nearby lakes, which turns them brown, and also stimulates algal growth. So yes, there are natural processes that can affect the color of a lake, but we also have to be mindful about how we as humans and what we do to the land surrounding these waters, or even to the waters directly, what we put in them can affect their color and as a consequence, their water quality. I feel confused about what to think about
0: the loss of Blue Lakes Um, I got it when I thought that we were polluting the lakes, Mm -hmm. but if we were losing Blue Lakes
5: because we've cleaned up
0: acid (laughs) rain, um, I don't know what to think.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's a complex question, and it may actually be a good sign for the environment. Um, like you said, before, all lakes can exist in any one of these four different colors naturally. And, you know, we're partial to blue lakes because we as humans find them beautiful.
0: And we're partial to clear.
5: And we're partial to clear, too. But a brown lake, as someone who studies organic matter, I think brown lakes are beautiful, too. Um they're very interesting systems with organisms that like to live in them too. and the. But the question is, you know, has that lake always been brown or has it, you know, become brown more recently because of human activities or, or as a recovery to acid rain?
0: What are scientists saying about it? The general consensus is concern?
5: Yeah, the general consensus is concern because these changes are happening over short times, um, timescales, right? Um, five years. And what we think, so there are many people asking this question about browning, right? Is it recovery from acid rain or is it due to climate change, right? We have, um, increases in global temperature, which, um, increases the activity of bacteria and, and other organisms fungi earthworms you know they're the ones that are creating soil and processing that organic matter in the soil and so as they're working faster there's more organic matter that's available to run off into a nearby lake and then compound that with how climate change is altering precipitation patterns if we have increases in precipitation that rainfall is going to pick up that organic matter in the soil and then carry it with it downstream into into the lake. And so many scientists are working on this question. What is it? And what we're finding is that it depends. It depends on where that lake is. In some cases, we have data that have looked at you know, changes in acid rain over time to see if the rate of browning matches that recovery from acid rain. In some cases, for some lakes, it does. But for other lakes, it doesn't. And so that suggests that something else is going on in those systems. Uh, One of the major findings of our study is, yes, we're losing blue lakes, and that's cause for concern. But the other part of that is that we found an increase in murky lakes. So remember those murky lakes are brownish green in color because they have both increased organic matter and nutrient runoff. Those murky lakes, we found that they have even more algae growing in them than green lakes. And A lot of that algae tends to be cyanobacteria or blue-green algae. Those are the types of algae that produce toxins that can be harmful to human health or to our pets, right, and the other organisms living in those systems. Things like um, microcystin. Uh, Concentrations, which can be harmful to your liver or or even cause cancer. So, these murky lakes have more blue green algae in them and potentially, and the potential for more of these algal toxins that can make us sick. The other thing that we found is um, the National Lakes Assessment Program does a good job with collecting data on not only the kind of algae that's in the water. But the zooplankton, so zooplankton are really important to the aquatic food chain, right? We have algae at the base of the food chain. These zooplankton consume algae. And then small fish consume the zooplankton, and then big fish eat the small fish, right? So these zooplankton are sort of central to the aquatic food chain. What we can do is we can take the ratio of how much zooplankton um, are living in the water to how much algae are living in the water. And that ratio can give us a good indication about how much energy is moving up that food chain. And what we found is that the ratios are pretty low, suggesting that even though there's lots of algae in those systems, that energy is not making its way up the food chain. And so there's the potential for murky lakes to have um, reduced fisheries maybe now or or potentially in the future. Unfortunately, we couldn't test that hypothesis directly because the National Lakes Assessment um, Program doesn't look at fish either what kinds of fish or the number of fish living in a lake that's just too labor intensive with all the other things that they're collecting. Um, but but that is one of the things that we would like. Maybe there are other data sets out there with um, fisheries information that we can explore, you know, lake color and fisheries to know, in a murky lake, are those fish suffering in some way?
0: Well, Dana, I had not known about the National Lakes Assessment. I'm glad it's there. Yes. and that we're doing these every five years.
5: Yeah, it's a tremendous resource, and I hope that it will continue to be funded into the future because it, it provides a wealth of information on many different issues.
0: Dina Leach is a professor of biology at Longwood University. Coming up next, the power of caterpillars. While forests in most of America are deep summer green right now, in a few short months, the leaves will start changing colors. Actually, all kinds of things affect fall foliage, including caterpillars. Rebecca Forkner is a biology professor at George Mason University. She studies caterpillars and the surprising things we can learn from them. Rebecca, I've heard that when you were a young scientist, you really wanted to study primates. But you ended up falling in love with caterpillars.
6: (laughs) I did. Yeah. You know, it is just the uh, incredible coloration. We see things that mimic tarantulas. We see things that um, look like um, poop. We see things that um, mimic bird feathers. Even though they're a caterpillar, they look like a fluffy feather. We see things that are big and fat, larger than your thumb, um, that are green and smooth, we call them petable ones. There are things that um, have giant eyes like snakes. Huh. So there's this just enormous, um, beautiful variation that you wouldn't expect if you were thinking. Most people, for example, who don't study caterpillars refer to them as worms, like you might think about a little brown earthworm. But they're just so variable, including ones that are clear um, and look like um. Icicles. I saw
0: a video last night of a caterpillar with clear skin. You could see the insides through and through. And as I watched this creature sort of pumping its heart, sending little veins throughout the body
6: as one pump, 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 pump. I thought, oh my gosh, caterpillars are people. It reminds me of a toy that I had as a child. It was an invisible man and an invisible woman. You could take the uh, different pieces apart and see all of the veins on the inside and all of the organs. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really similar. You can actually see what the caterpillar is chewing on as it swallows. So those were always fascinating to me.
0: So often, so-called tent caterpillars, the ones that form these vast spiderweb-like nests and trees then eat their way through the tree when they emerge. Um, have been what we've mostly thought of with caterpillars. And those are just seen as pests. They ruin crops. Do you see them differently?
6: I, I certainly do. And, as, and tent caterpillars, especially, I don't consider to be pests. They will certainly damage your oak trees, for example, on your front lawn. Or cherry tree is, is definitely one of their favorite foods. Uh-huh. Um, but they they communicate with each other through chemicals they leave on the silk. So they're a family, essentially, They feed together, uh, they nest together at night and they will eventually wander off on their own individual journeys and go to different trees in the forest and wind up not doing quite a lot of damage. The ones that I worry about a little more are the ones that are crop pests. So things like the cabbage whites um, that will definitely damage your crops or eat your corn. I often find um, hornworms for example caterpillars that feed on corn when I go to the grocery store and I peel back an ear of corn and uh, peel the husk off. yeah. So those are the ones that are, are a little more concerning about crop damage. Do you get so
0: into it that on one level you feel fond of them?
6: I do, uh, and I will admit that my students and I have given them names when we are rearing them in the lab, <laughs> uh, keeping track of their development. Uh, we've had, in some cases, uh, several hundred at a time, um, and uh, We have had them chew through containers and escape and run around the lab. So uh, we have a a constant uh, number of babies to take care of, as we say.
0: Tell me about the kind of symbiosis that occurs between plants and caterpillars or plants and pests. Plants are able to form their own repellent, their own insecticide to try to defend themselves against caterpillars.
6: That's right. In fact, nicotine... In cigarettes is, in fact, a insecticide that tobacco makes to deter insects, uh, often things like small beetles, uh, but it does deter some of the caterpillars as well. Um, so there's a variety of things like nicotine, cocaine, lots of things that we might commonly hear about that are toxic or hallucinogenic are plant compounds that are used uh, as an immune system, effectively, to deter damage on the plant. Are
0: there efforts underway to try to mimic these sort of natural pesticides so we could maybe replace the Roundup poisons that are, we're using now?
6: Well, what we've actually tried to mimic as a bacteria compound, a chemical in a bacteria that um, essentially causes the insect gut to explode, That's called Bacillus thuringiensis, or Bt for short. That's the chemical that we often use in genetically modified crops to make them resistant to insects. But we're at uh, George Mason University starting a drug discovery program that looks at both plants and insects and other organisms, in some cases Komodo dragons, uh, to look for the discovery of new uh, medications.
0: I've read that we're in the midst or on the brink of a kind of insect apocalypse. Could that possibly be the case? It always seems like there's so many.
6: It does. I um, have to say that this is an uh, open area of debate right now among entomologists, among scientists who study insects. I think we are, in fact, witnessing a decline. We have studies of butterflies from Britain Uh, that have been going on for hundreds of years that do document the loss, the enormous loss of species. I know from our own work here in Virginia on bumblebees that we are seeing almost a precipitous drop, a complete loss of many of the species that we rely on as pollinators. And fireflies, I think, are the classic example that most people notice them disappearing from their backyards So we have been studying and following these caterpillars, for example, in Missouri for three decades, and we have been watching a very, very slow decline in the number of individuals that we see. Is the
0: thinking it's more because of habitat loss or because of pesticides?
6: It's a combination, and you might not know that we used to have the Rocky Mountain locust in the United States, which caused enormous famine, and it is extinct. And the cause of of loss for that species was a combination. It was both us breaking up the habitat and converting grasslands to agriculture, as well as widespread use of a variety of insecticides, from simple things like lead arsenic, which were some of the first insecticides, to things like DDT. So it was a combination of both of those things that drove something that used to occur in the trillions and trillions of numbers uh, to um, the brink of extinction. Uh, So it is likely similar for a variety of other insects, whether it's pollinators or caterpillars or butterflies that we see. It's a combination of both of those factors, along with some of the changes that we're seeing in the global temperature.
0: Even when you are studying caterpillars and studying the insect effect on autumn colors, you're also seeing something much larger. You are also seeing not just seasonal change, but actual climate change.
6: That's correct. We see much more changes than simply just, for example, it being warmer in the summertime. What we are seeing are things like, I have a colleague, Xi Yang, at the University of Virginia. He and his colleagues refer to it as false springs. So you will have spring coming earlier in the year, but then you will have a frost that occurs, say, in June, um, so that you have what would typically be an early spring temperature later in the summer. That has a very negative effect on insect populations. We've been studying that with our long-term caterpillar data from Missouri as well. So we see fall springs. We see later autumns. We see more extreme uh, temperatures. I have a student right now who is studying how extreme summer temperatures change the color of butterfly wings, for example. Hmm. So there's a lot of different changes than one might expect from just simply saying the words – climate warming or global warming or temperature change. There's a number of very different seasonal things that are happening as as we do change the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere.
0: Well, Rebecca Forkner, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on With
6: Good Reason. You're welcome. I'm excited to talk about caterpillars any day of the week. <laughs> Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Rebecca Forkner is a biology professor at George Mason University. This has been an encore presentation of an episode that originally aired in 2019. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and to preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Alison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer, Cassandra Deering, and Dante Woodfolk are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.